Hello, and welcome to this month's episode of the CF Armed Forces podcast with me, your host, James Clark. On this month's podcast, we hear from Shane Mason, former Royal Navy Rating and Defence Industry Executive. And we also hear from the Secretary of State for Defence, Ben Wallace MP, as he discusses the integrated review at Conservative Spring Conference. Our first guest is a regular at defence events, whether that be in attendance at Chatham House or Russie, or walking the corridors of Whitehall. Shane Mason joined the Royal Navy in 2003 as a gunner, serving four years, and has since had a meteoric rise in defence, taking on major responsibilities such as leading T4X for BAE Systems, and now as Head of Strategy for Defence Systems and Technology within Babcock International, even finding time for an MBA, sponsored by his MOD learning credits. No doubt he's wearing his trademark bow tie for this interview. It's great to have Shane join us. Shane, thanks so much for joining us. Um, let's begin by asking a really simple question. What are the characteristics of a good military or defence technology? Well, it's a really good question, James. There's, there's loads of current and, and historic examples of, of what good military defence technology looks like. But I suppose if we were to identify or think about a few of the characteristics, I suppose they would be that the technology meets a need and solves a problem. And what we mean by that, now that may sound very simple and very obvious, but it has to enhance an existing capability or it must introduce a new capability. So it must have a really strong use case in the battlefield. Mm. It's got to enable the, the end users, if you like, to, to be able to manipulate the, the warfighting scenario in their favour. Mm. So it's got to be able to solve some kind of military problem is, is, is one of the first characteristics. Another characteristic is that good technologies in the defense and security space are scalable and tailorable or tailorable rather what i mean by that is that um, they can meet high or low demands so we can um, create and replicate those technologies as needed on a demand basis a good example of this would be, for example, the, the Typhoon Eurofighter by BA Systems, which has had over 550 units sold to date um, to countries such as uh, Spain, Italy, Germany, for example. And that's because of the scalability in their, in their solution, if you like, as well. So scalability is really, really important because it enables uh, the, the, the technology to be exportable as well as um, adaptable for the battlefield so and when we say tailorable as well we mean can the actual technology solution meet specific demands and needs i suppose the most easiest example or basic example of something that is tailorable now you you served in, in the army did you not that's right yeah in the infantry yeah that's right and did you use the saata1 was it I use the A2, yes, yeah. Yeah, the A2. Well, yeah, the A2, let's, let's just, you know, the A2. Um, you probably had a different number of options for sights. You could have used an iron sight on the rifle, or you could have used a, you know, a scope or, or some other kind of optic. Yeah, I, I started off training with an iron sight and then moved on to uh, the SUSAT sight. The SUSAT, yeah. Moved yeah. on to the ACOG for Herrick 15, actually, yeah. Yeah, got you. Yeah, well, that's an example of where you know your your, your rifle is is tailorable. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, the, the you know the, whoever is behind that, that those designs designed it to be able to be adapted for such a man, including even down to the collimation settings yeah. and the gas settings of the rifle as well. So that's a very basic example. Uh, a major example, a larger scale example, would be um, a, a, a complex warship such, such as a Type 23 frigate. You can either have harpoons on them or not, if you like, or you can have a towed array sonar, for example, or not, depending on which mission they're going on. So being tailorable as well as scalable are really quite important factors. And we mentioned earlier about the exportability. Exportability really, really is key because it's got to be attractive for international allies uh, or in, from an industrial perspective, that's, that's the international markets. But from the political perspective, it's, it's, your, it's your international allies and it's got to help meet the operational and political needs. So if we go back to the typhoon, for example, which we mentioned earlier, one of the reasons why nations buy similar or same products just slightly tailored to their own needs is that they want to have a match fit of operational capability with your allies. So you, you provide a greater synergy, a greater sum of the parts 
which mm. is uh, which is what a lot of NATO is about. So, yeah, technology that solves a problem is scalable and tailorable, and is also exportable or compatible with with, with allies. Uh, are some of the characteristics of what a good technology or defence solution looks like. And so, obviously, these these defence solutions are you know in part considered by the government, the MOD, of course, that you know they're actually developed through use, you know, or through scenarios and situations where you know, the man or woman on the ground comes up and says, well, actually, we, we need to develop technology in a certain way. But of course, it also comes from companies as well. You know, the, the private sector is incredibly important in, in UK defence. And with so many sort of different emerging technologies, you know, so much kind of new new kit and, and also software, you know, on the horizon, how do, how do we kind of keep up, with, you know, in terms of military technology? How do those companies stay ahead? Yeah, well, there's a, there's no one hard fixed rule or, or one no no run one particular way of, of of doing this, but essentially there's there's some different techniques that different companies adopt. Mm -hmm. You can uh, so you can do a, a technology scanning if you like. So you do a lot of horizon scanning, and that's starting with the capability need and then doing a kind of a, a hide and seek, if you like, or a find and seek of which technologies, the functionalities they provide match the capabilities. So imagine it like a daisy chain, if you like, where you have the capability, you look for different functionalities because you look at different characteristics of different technologies and they do that whole horizon scanning to work out, okay, which match fits are going to work. Mm. And that's kind of starting in the, in, in, the, in the blue sky thinking space, if you like. And uh, so there's technology scanning, which is one option. And very popular as well, especially if you want to do market disruptors. So if you want to do, uh, if, we, if we go back to the previous question and, and we, where we said about introducing new capability, technology scanning can often help do that. Yeah. We have a technology watch, which is where the technology is known, but it's monitored through the, through the maturation process and how mature it becomes and how much it develops. So as an example, um, uh, artificial intelligence um, artificial intelligence is being watched by a number of different defense companies and, and, and non-defense companies looking to apply it to defense later on once it gets to a state of being able to do so um, because it's just it's just not there yet whether that's whether for reasons of computing power or use case scenario or legislative as well mm. let's is a good example of where artificial intelligence you don't want to take the human out of the kill chain yeah. and you don't want to disrupt the kill chain because you don't want to blur the lines of responsibility because someone's got to be accountable for every action in war as you you would know james being a former officer yourself mm. yeah um so there's a technology watch piece which is for the existing technologies that they know are going to be useful in some kind of way so that's an alternative way of doing it but either which way in which the the companies do understand and look at these technologies there's got to be a match fit so the technologies have got to align with the products and portfolios of the organization so for example i wouldn't imagine a firm such as talis mm. at the moment looking at um, airframes for example because they're, they're not in that game mm. you know they, they they're not in that market they're not in that sector um whereas a firm such as ba systems firmly are if you mm. like yeah um, if you look at the the uh, space technologies and if we look at the how to combine different systems across space domains that's something which Babcock would probably be looking at at the moment yeah so um, it's about what fits the portfolio of an organization what doesn't because the company's got to be able to do something with it if you like mm. uh, so in essence it's got to be able to be able to be brought to market it can't just be sat there and you know and waiting for the right moment of use case without there actually being any kind of rational reason as to why to invest and watch the technology or to scan and identify the technology in the first place but in terms of staying ahead in which you mentioned staying ahead it's about alignment of technologies to create synergy as well if we use an example of underwater warfare for the royal navy where they would you would have a a combat management system which is the brain if you like of the combat system and that combat system would have a sonar to detect an enemy submarine you have the combat management system which would process it if you like and provide the functionality and what to do with that track you'll maybe to track and trace and monitor the movements of an enemy submarine and then you would have also a torpedo system with a firing system behind that etc so and all those different 
systems of systems have various different technologies behind them. So it's about aligning those different technologies to create synergies. Sure. So sometimes the trick is, is to identify the technologies which have the most use case of alignment across a portfolio to create a bigger outcome. And it's about collaborating across industry and government as well. So we have to be able to collaborate both industrial with other partners as well. Again, if, we're, if there's a technology which is emerging, which may be, which may be useful and, and interesting to one company, but may not actually align completely with another, another firm's portfolio, hmm. then it's about identifying who it can work for and or not to provide a greater sum of the whole. So collaboration is, is a real key part of that with the government as a, as a, as a partner, sponsor and or customer as well. Yeah, I mean, we had um, Mark Menzies MP on a, a few uh, a few podcasts ago, and he was talking about Team Tempest and about how that was, you know, a mixture of kind of government and government sponsorship, um, private company and private enterprise, um, research, you know, elements from universities, and then also this international collaborative um, kind of way of working that, that you've that you've already discussed i mean obviously we, we you've, you've gone through some of the sort of specific technologies that that these these issues kind of apply to but what do you see as there being kind of big changes or macro influences which might impact technologies that that are needed at the moment well if we if i take a real um really high sort of geo strategic geopolitical strategic lens on it mm. Times of political intensity create the environment for quite significant military technological change. If we look at the First World War, for example, um, some of the differentiators in the First World War in terms of increased firepower between the trenches, they were very product orientated. They were very um, um, handheld weaponry and grenades and, and bombs. Um, so very product centric. Whereas where what happens is, is that forces industry to change and adapt and industries to emerge as well. Mm. And if we, if we go forward into the Second World War, the use of platforms really started coming into their own. The use of aircraft, uh, such as the, uh, the Spitfire, for example, and the use of tanks. So maneuverability really started to play a part. But the key thing is it was taking the now matured products and applying them to the platforms you see mm. to enable that differentiation in the, in the battle space mm. and then if we look to the cold war where really sensors started coming into their own in terms of um in in, in terms of um, communications electronic warfare and indeed op optical sensors they 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 really started to develop because the technology was there to mature them and then they started getting applied to the platforms as well but these significant step changes all took place as a result in and around political intensity mm. so at the moment i would be inclined to say that we are most certainly firmly entering a, a period of political intensity because there is a global power shift occurring. And I suppose the key is to identify at the moment what the, what is going to be the game changers within that space, if you like, what's going to be of the most use because warfare has, has changed hmm. where we know the likes of the, the, the grey zone, as it's called, and how we fight wars and how we win wars and indeed how people perceive wars is is certainly changing so identifying what the most useful technologies which provide the most useful outcomes for the warfighter is, uh, is is going to be is going to be key at the moment but i'd say the big macro change is really here now with the the global power shift occurring and that political intensity the big question is 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 how can that be addressed i suppose yeah i mean i just think about what you're saying you know i i, I you know, I sort of going back to some of my own experience, you know, I, I deployed with the mobility element, which was a Mastiff armoured vehicle. You know, it had a, a, a U-shaped hull, um, which would, and that, and that had been developed because um, previous vehicles that have been going out, you know, that the soldiers have been using in Afghanistan, you know, they were very susceptible with a flat hull to um, improvise explosive devices and mines. Um, and so, you know, that piece of equipment had been developed. But of course, as you've been saying, it was also a platform because effectively 
we used it not only as a transportation device to move uh, infantry around, but also as a weapons platform with a 50 cal or a GMG on the top. So we actually, it was almost like a multi-use platform. And when I think about the really kind of almost specific, almost individual incidents that led to the development of that technology, what you're saying about the, the macro changes, you're sort of saying, look at the global, scenario and see what changes are going to kind of come out as a result of you know for example um chinese expansion in the south china sea or um you know an american uh, shift out of europe you know sort of mm. elements like that are gonna gonna almost produce the same need for technological advances that, that's kind of right isn't it Yes, absolutely, and you know, it's 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 is is the is the warfare about maneuverability warfare? Is it about is it about forward operating presence? You know, we we got there's got to be a match fit, if you like, in terms of in this emerging new new political system that that, that that's coming about. You know, what does conflict what does cooperation and what does conflict avoidance look like mm. and then subsequently what are the solutions solutions to fit that absolutely but I, I i would hazard a guess that the solutions that have been developed to date whilst they may not actually reduce in relevance we may see a reduction in their de in their decline in their uh, in their demand if you like or decline in their demands mm. and that will come out as a result of the integrated review and all of our stuff which i'm not i, I I can't really second guess is what's going to be in, in the integrated review, but it's natural for it to occur that investment will be redirected as a result of times of, of intensity because that's how you, and when we say investment, we don't just need mean money, we, we mean the time and the effort and the thought space from the likes of industry and, and, and government and uniformed personnel. Because that's how the that's how the new solutions are are identified and and brought to to the fore. So yeah, absolutely. There there is right now a need to be able to consider how where we focus going forward because it is highly likely not to be as it was even five years ago, yet alone 10, 15, 20 years ago. Mm. And so, and so with, with those challenges, you know, you and I are both obviously conservatives and most of our listeners are, are conservatives as well. You know, we, we, we are highly committed to the, um, the, the sort of the energy, the dynamism, the agile nature of the private sector, um, obviously working in tandem with the, the demands of the state. So what kind of role is there for private firms seeking to sell to the state? And how do you think the state and corporate entities, particularly in aerospace and defence, work together in the future? There's a lot of good work that goes on at the moment, and no doubt that there's a lot of good work that that will that will most certainly continue mm. through. Um, when we look at how some of our larger organisations, such as Babcock and BAE, etc., in, interface with with, with government mm. it can sometimes be very different to some of the small medium enterprises and some of the more niche technology product providers because um, they may not necessarily provide a technology which directly contributes to a capability but within a supply chain of a technology solution mm. a system they will be a very inherent part of that so and the, the model is is very different across the spectrum there's, there's, there's not a one size fits all. Mm. However, there's the, the, the state plays a couple of different roles and so does industry generally as a result of this spectrum. The state is customer, so there's direct transaction. So, and that requires industry to be responsible, open, transparent and reliable suppliers. So there's that whole customer direct transactional piece as well. Hmm. There's also the state as sponsor, where the state is co-creator, where the state will jointly invest in research and development, where the state will enable tax breaks through research and development, for example. Yeah. And the state will be more of a collaborative partner with industry, and industry will need to be a collaborative partner as well. And again, that, that, that requires a lot of stakeholder relationship management and open dialogue as well and that's more transformational mm. rather than transactional so i suppose it's it's a willingness and the agility to flex between the two and yeah. to be situational which is going to what, what is going to be required because as we go through this or as we are going through this whole 
um, change, this, this, this power shift change and the geopolitical shift change, which was ultimately result in policy shift change. We need to be able to be, un, identify what parts we play in which programs and or products that we provide from the industry side and on the government side, what we need out of industry and what we need out of our partners and suppliers. So it's about showing willingness and agility, but there's no hard fixed rule. A lot of people view the, the government as the customer and the, the industry as the suppliers. And yes, that is very true, but it's only true to a certain extent. There's also the sponsor, the status sponsor part as well. Um, and again, that requires a lot of collaborative partnership approach and, and cultural behaviours. Yeah, I mean, I've, I, the, the more time I spend speaking with experts like yourself and speaking with MPs, that I, I see that the whilst the state is a customer and business, you know, and 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 you know, the private sector supplies the, the customer with a product. Actually, in order to supply the customer with a product, the customer needs to a be pretty specific and b commit and c have have the financial kind of resources to actually. To, to get that product, you know, up and running and, and to sort of follow through with it. And that's why I think there was such a huge sigh of relief from industry um, at the back end of last year when the uh, the funding settlement was agreed with the the, um, the Chancellor. And, and that, you know, that, that funding settlement that's the largest, you know, since, um, well, in the post-war period, um, over four years, you know, that's actually really been a, a, a huge... Um, boon to the sector and to UK defence. Yeah, absolutely. It, re it really was. Um, the, uh, and there was there was a lot of cheers in industry <laughs> when, when, when that did occur. You know, um, um, however, I would caveat that by saying that there is a general consensus of understanding from people who I interface with mm. that Yes, there is there is a settlement uh, in terms of the expenditure, but how it's going to be spent will change because it has to change, James. You know, it can't we can't keep you know um, with the same models in the same and approaching how we develop technological solutions to address warfare in the same way because you end up you end up with a bit of a self licking lollipop, mm. you know, and it, it, it will eventually become a race to the bottom over the years and we won't actually innovate anything. Yeah. So. Um, it's a very exciting time to be in, and all I would all I would suggest really is that in order to make the most of that, is to be flexible and be willing to invest. It's not all about the state investing; it's also about the industry investing as well, private private equity investing, and taking a bigger lion's share and taking a bit of that risk as well. Mm -hmm. Of course, yeah. Um, Shane, you are an incredibly busy man, um, I know, and, and you've got lots of um, lots of important people to speak to and, and, and clever things to do. So I've just got one final question for you, but it's probably the broadest um, question. So hopefully you can get your teeth into it a bit. Um, but as, as a, um, a, a sort of professional military technology strategist, what do you think or, or, or who are, who, who do you think the biggest threats are at the moment or where do they come from and where should the focus of the not necessarily of the integrated review because that will probably report during the break between the, the production of this podcast but but what where do you think we should be focusing um where the, where should the uk government be focusing and where should um corporate entities um be be, be putting their r d their development their commitment very good question. Very good question. Ooh, I thought I'd give you a decent, a decent. Yeah, absolutely. I could, I could sit here and I could reel off the usual suspects, and I could give some reason and rationale as to why I could back that with some kind of technological approaches to to counteract the current um, activities around them to sort of justify an immediate investment, and I, I could do that. But actually. Um, now I've now, now I've brought myself some time. I'm going to answer this slightly differently, and <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say the biggest risk and the biggest threat is ourselves, James. And what I mean by that is we need to be able to recognise the current time of political intensity and what that actually means. Mm. That there is going to be change. Mm. Our external environment is changing, therefore our internal environment our culture, people, process, policies, et cetera, need to change as well in order to address mm. those needs. So it's about, the, the biggest risk, I suppose, is about failing to recognize solutions to end 
or avoid what conflict could look like. Because conventionally, you could argue that, I mean, the history has shown that there are many, many, many different ways to start a conflict and to, and to start a war. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, history has proved that, <laughs> you know, but to end a war, one could argue that there's three, you know, mainstream, you know, methodologies, if you like. Yeah. And yeah. that's to either eliminate the military capability your opponents and to exhaust their political will mm. um, if we use the vietnam war as an example and the operation frequent wind in 1975 uh, was a demarcation of the um, uh, general giap from, from from vietnam recognized um, that the the big the biggest weakness that his opponents had was democracy Mm. and how they went through a democratic process and that democratic process the outcome of was dependent upon the attitude of the people and the attitude of the people was dependent upon a number of different factors mm. so he recognized that that is the best weapon to use so he positioned all his forces to just sustain the fighting until democracy took its natural path of course mm. because if he actually went to have a a a a, a capability-led fight with the US, he, you know, it probably would have ended up very much one way. Yeah. So exhausting the political will is a second way. And there's a third way of eradicating the social credibility of your opponents. And as we, as, as the downfall of Berlin Wall in 1989, as a subsequent, um, uh, subsequent what happened with the, uh, the USSR in 1991, I believe, shortly following that, of course, the, that, that proves that they, you, you can actually change the the outcome of a, of a period of political intensity through either of those three means. Mm. Now, we also have to recognize that, that war is a continuation of a political relationship because instead of having, you know, diplomatic dialogue with our enemies, we've now passed that on to the generals. And some would argue that's because the politicians have not been able to do their job for any number of reasons, mm. right? And when that relationship then comes back, transfers back from 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 war fighting back into back into political dialogue the, a good example of that would be the end of the Falklands war where the the British senior military officers who took the surrender of the Argentinians and uh, left um, the Argentine officers with their with their sidearms but with no mm. ammunition of course yeah. um, that was a demarcation of the British army acknowledging that this is now going to become a go back to a political relationship, not a military one, because the war is over, if yeah. you like. Yeah. Now, with that in mind, in terms of how to end and or avoid war, I suppose if we don't recognize that we have to invest in ways which can enable us to undertake and or exercise those three means, then we're already at a loss. Mm. We need to be able to recognize ways and means to be able to either eliminate military capability, exhaust political will, or eradicate, eradicate social credibility. Because without those, we're, we're never gonna be able to be adaptable to meet the right demands and be and, and do the right thing that we need to do. And that goes for both industry and government and indeed anyone else, you know, policy advisors or you know, investors, et cetera. You know, that's that's a key thing that we all need to be able to address and to do in this in this new emerging world. Because we've got to spend, we've got to focus, and we've got to dedicate to you know to to stuff which is different to what it was in the last five, 10, 15 years. And you start doing that by recognizing that change is coming about. So I hope I've explained myself quite clearly there, James. I've probably gone on a bit of a, bit of a tangent there. Yeah, the, the, the biggest fear is, is a, a lack of acknowledgement that change is coming and a lack of action in changing ourselves to suit the coming uh situation the new situation yeah i think i i mean yeah yeah it, it certainly certainly more um certainly more uh depth than shouting russia or china <laughs> yeah <laughs> well absolutely we, we can shout russia and china we can shout russia or china all day you know but actually what's really going to have an impact is what we do and recognizing what we need to do as well exactly as you said james you said it better than me well, Shane, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really, really um, great to have you. Um, and hopefully we can we might we might be able to squeeze you in again later in the year, perhaps when we've had the integrated review and perhaps hear your thoughts um, on on you know what what the government have kind of put forward and, and what Secretary of State is is saying. Um, 
thank you so much. Is, is, have you got anything else that you'd like to discuss or, or are you? Well, uh, James, it's been an absolute pleasure. Happy to come on board again. Great. you know and 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 to collaborate in any other way or or share any uh share any uh any views you know impartially of course and independently as as, as today has been um but it's been an absolute pleasure i hope your listeners have enjoyed it our second part of the podcast is a recording of the secretary of state for defense ben wallace mp joining me for a discussion on the integrated review from Conservative Spring Conference held on the 27th of March, 2021. The Secretary of State for Defence, our guest today, was elected to Parliament in 2005 after a stint as a Scottish MP. He's been a PPS, a WIP, a Northern Ireland minister and the UK's longest serving security minister. In fact, he's held ministerial office at every level. He represents the seat of Wire and Preston and was appointed Secretary of State for Defence in July 2019. Prior to his political career, he was an officer in the Scots Guards. He served in Germany, Cyprus, Belize, and in Northern Ireland, where he was mentioned in dispatches. Over the last few weeks, there has been a flurry of activity at the Ministry of Defence and for the Secretary of State at the dispatch box. Two weeks ago, the integrated review was published, which defines the government's vision for the UK's role in the world over the next decade. It was followed up this week by the Defence Command paper entitled Defence in a Competitive Age, which goes into more detail. If I may, I'd like to read a short quote from the Secretary of State, which I found particularly poignant. He wrote, to serve my country as a soldier was one of the greatest privileges of my life, contributing to keeping this country safe, upholding our values and defending those who could not defend themselves. Putting yourself in harm's way in the service of your country is something that fortunately few of us are ever required to do, but all have a duty to ensure that those who do so on our behalves are as well prepared and equipped as possible. In this session, I believe we'll hear a little bit more about the integrated review, the defense command paper, and then the secretary of state will be answering your questions. So please type them into the platform and I'll read out a selection. Secretary of state, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, James. And can I just thank you for the organization you head up, the Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces, it's incredibly important to me doing my job as Defence Sec to, to understand not only what our members and the armed forces think, but also as a conduit for us uh, to make sure that the party shapes some of its policies to reflect today's realities rather than perceptions and, and what we think are the things that are important. So thank you very much for that, James. Uh, and look, thank you for the opportunity to speak, uh, obviously, to conference today. I wish it was uh, in a different environment. Um, all of us, I think, have probably got slightly fed up with uh, the Zoom calls. Uh, and it would have been good for me. I was hoping maybe Harrogate, I don't live that far away. I live in obviously Cumbria, Lancashire, but it's always nice to remain up north rather than having to necessarily go elsewhere. Look, um, a long time ago, I was a brand new young officer, uh, a second lieutenant, and I was doing my infantry specialty course, my my specialist of arms training, and we were all caught out onto a drill square and options for change was announced. Uh, a man I'd never met before, I think it was a colonel, came out, read a list, and half of our regiments disappeared. Uh, that was fairly brutal. We went off back to our classrooms and our syndicates. Uh, and it was a time when the Soviet Union was still in existence, Al-Qaeda, no one had ever heard of. And no one really knew what the future was about. And it was also a time where treasuries and were keen to get their hands on money uh, and savings in our armed forces. And that has unfortunately been for many, many years, one of the characteristics of defence reviews, which is while on paper it's talked quite a good game, the ambitions have never been matched by funding. They've often been overambitious and underfunded. And in the end, the people who pay for that consequence are the men and women of the armed forces. In the end, you can line up lots of regiments and lots of ships and, and play top trumps with them, but if there's not the money to maintain them, if there's not the money to update their equipment, you end up with ships tied alongside in Portsmouth, or men and women going to war in snatch Land Rovers. And I was determined in this review to do two things. Make sure that our ambitions and funding met, and that exactly we met, met and matched each other. And secondly, that what we did put at the heart the men and women that we asked to go and risk our lives and make sure that whatever we sent them to do, they were surrounded by the right equipment and supported by the right allies. I think those two things are really, really important. So first and foremost, 
there's been a sizable shift in the world we live in. And I, being a previous security minister and indeed a long, long time ago an intelligence officer, really understand the value of threat. Threat should drive the shape of our armed forces, not sentimentality, not what, how we won yesterday's battle, but what are the threats emerging? What are the threats on the horizon? And just like using this today, I'm using a Zoom call through the internet. And the internet has meant a turbo boost in things like knowledge transfer. It's a, it's a symptom of globalization. And alongside knowledge transfer has come proliferation of technologies. Technologies that used to belong, James, in a very, very few people's hands. Used to belong in maybe the Soviet Union, the West, some of the Western developed nations. And that type of technology would be encryption so that it was very hard to listen or intercept what people do between them when they're speaking or indeed precision. I don't know if you remember, you're probably too young, but I remember marveling at the first Gulf War where we all saw uh, the Tomahawk cruise missile literally going along the street and turning left in Baghdad. And I remember, I think it was a CNN crew filmed it. Well, that precision is no longer unique to the United States or Britain. It's in the hands of Houthi rebels in Yemen firing ballistic missiles at going 1400 kilometers and hitting their target. It's in the hands of, of Iran. It's in the hands of non-state actors and terrorism. That, that opens up a whole new world. That means tanks are vulnerable to people in pickup trucks with, with precision missiles stuck on the back. That means that if a country, an adversary wants to use proxies, such as the Russians use Wagner Group, a, a, a very large Russian mercenary company, but nevertheless incredibly well equipped. They want to use those proxies to uh, push a conflict in a region one way or the other, they can. If they want to uh, weaken a, a state uh, or weaken our interests, they can. And that means we have to do something about it. We have to recognize what's happened in the recent battlefields of Syria, in Libya, in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, in the Caucasus, where Pretty cheap uh, Turkish UAVs have decimated mass gatherings of armor or indeed personnel and key anti-air capabilities. We have to recognize the impact of cyber on uh, our vulnerabilities. And we have to recognize uh, the future direction, often guided in fact by where our adversaries are investing. Russia is investing in long range precision missiles going incredibly fast. Uh, you know, China is investing in a massive surface Navy, and that opens up a whole lot of questions for us. So I was determined that we were threat led, but determined that our ambition matched our stomachs. And then I was determined that we took some of the big decisions we need. And, and members should remember that unlike previous reviews, I'm doing this amongst a background of rising funding, 24 billion pounds extra, not 24 billion pounds of which 18 or 20 billion or even 22 billion is fantasy efficiency savings. This is extra money. I'll spend nearly 190 billion pounds over the next four years on delivering defense. So that gives me headroom and space to modernize our armed forces, to genuinely invest in, in the future, uh, but also being brave enough to let go of things that aren't necessary or indeed are obsolete. And letting go is not easy. Uh, you know, people are sentimental. People do uh, look back uh, with rose-tinted glasses at, at our previous experience. And I understand that. I, I'm part of a regiment that was 379 years of age uh, only a few weeks ago. I understand the power and the importance of pedigree and heritage, but that shouldn't be a block uh, to our reforming. So in the paper, not only did we set about investing for the future and letting go of some capabilities, but also investing in new areas, expanding our Navy's contribution around the world as a global uh, trading nation, making sure they are up to date and bringing onto line the, super, the aircraft carriers and the F-35s. We're going to invest in the land capability of our armed forces. Our army is woefully behind uh, their allies and their contemporaries and, in, and indeed vulnerable to many of our adversaries. And it's time they had the investment in their land capability and electronic warfare and all the things that they should have had many, many years ago. And then of course, a consistent and con constant con uh, uh, commitment to NATO. It is our cornerstone. We are a leader in NATO, the second biggest spender in NATO. We must use that position, not just to be a passenger in NATO, but to help drive the reforms around cyber and sub-threshold warfare, which leads me on to the, the final bit. You know, you can roll up an armored brigade in Iraq, off Saddam Hussein. You can do that. And, and as we've shown when, when 
Western allies come together, we're unstoppable. But if you're not configured to win the war afterwards, all you do is end up suffering casualties or end up in a scenario like Basra, where yes, we rolled up the Iraqi tanks in days, really. And then armor brigade replaced armor brigade, while Basra became an insurgency fueled often by Iranian funds and support. So we have to configure armed forces so we can do really two things. One is the war fight, the NATO obligation. But it's also the other part is conflict prevention or winning the peace after a conflict. That's not necessarily super soft type stuff, but that is making sure you have different capabilities. And if you really want to avoid a war, we should engage earlier in making sure that we prevent conflicts around the world. Some of our friends and allies who share our values, where British interests are invested and tourists go abroad, they're vulnerable to our adversaries who use unconventional means to weaken them or to try and corrupt them or indeed to try and spread uh, subversion. But they're also vulnerable to radicalization. If you look in Africa, the spread of Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab uh, is a direct threat to the strength and integrity of countries uh, in the region like Somalia or indeed Kenya. And that's why we have to be there with them, alongside them, helping train them, which we already do, but stepping that up if they want it. If those countries want our assistance, we should be prepared to go further with them. Because I think the best way for you and I, James, to make sure we don't end up in a, in a horrendous total conflict is be there at the start, shaping Britain's global response to them, whether that's soft power, such as British Council, education, other work, counter-radicalization, or whether it's hard power insofar as helping train their security forces, keep themselves more secure. That's the long-term way to avoid a major conflict. But if there is a conflict and we've had to go and fight it with our friends and allies, we then need to make sure that we can then build the country again and build the peace afterwards. And I think that's an important step on this direction. And then not so far over the horizon, are, I'm afraid the new domains of cyber and space. Space, the Russians test fired at anti-satellite missiles not so long ago. The Chinese have a program clearly uh, to weaponize in space. And as a Western country, we are incredibly vulnerable if all the satellites are switched off. Some of the other countries aren't so vulnerable. So we have to invest in how we can either provide resilience or defense in space, either from the ground or in space. And we'll get uh, announced more of that in the future. So that's the overall aim of the command paper. 24 billion pounds of more money supported by the prime minister who was determined not to repeat the mistakes of the past. And it's why, yes, I've been a bit honest about what we're gonna let go. But I think the best thing I can give to the men and women of our armed forces, an honest picture, an honest review, it's also the message to my allies who are around the NATO table. They know, we know that sometimes on paper, we all sign up to things. But if I press the button tomorrow morning, and James, you'll have experienced that yourself. How much did you really get coming out the front door? A long time ago, I was, a, I think, in part of BAOR in Germany, where we were supposed to field three divisions. We had a, an exercise called Active Edge. It was neither active nor edgy. And I think if you actually press the button, you've probably got one and a half divisions. So we're not going to repeat that. We're going to be focused, ambitious, clever in how we apply our power, hard and soft, and project global Britain. Thank you, James. Um, Secretary of State, thank you so much. I mean, that that was a, a canter through what's about 180 pages of, of pretty technical um, pretty technical stuff that's been released over the last couple of weeks. Um, as, the, as the host, um, I get to ask the first question, and I'm actually going to reference um, a colour sergeant that I had um, who was a great inspiration and a, and, and a very thoughtful um, man, um, Matt Jackson. Um, he taught me an awful lot when I was in operations. And his question is, how will you encourage, persuade, or in some cases, force uh, personnel from generals to civil servants to deliver the changes and the outcomes that are necessary within budget and on time to showcase, as you've just referenced, the best of Britain and the Commonwealth? Well, I think... Your colour sergeant have also taught you a phrase called attention to detail. Uh, you know, it, it, leadership in the armed forces is no difference really from leadership in governing. You don't lead through your rank. You lead because you're on top of the subject. You, you, you have a real attention to detail. And I have an excellent team that helps me with both my special advisors, but also my ministers. James Heapy is absolutely brilliant at crunching down into operations. Jeremy Quinn is, is fantastic in the work on the defence procurement. So he really keeps an eye on the budgets 
uh, and making sure that our, our services don't get too enthusiastic or too gold plating of the equipment because that can come bite and back come back to bite you in five years and johnny mercer who who i sort of does a brilliant job in speaking soldier i mean he is excellent at reflecting a generation ahead of mine i'm not the same generation as johnny i didn't do the afghan tours he does so he understands some of the pressures that a new generation of members of the armed forces are under and he's been absolutely brilliant looking after both the veterans and reminding us all about the people throughout it. And, and he's a great, it's great as, as you know, some of us get carried away, he's, he will often bring us back down to earth as well. So it's a good team, uh, working as a team, I've worked in ministries, as you said, at all ranks, where I've worked in teams where sections of state didn't speak to ministers. I've, uh, you know, worked in teams where, uh, you know, sections of state didn't know how government worked particularly because they were very new into it. So using my experience, using my knowledge, but never forgetting what my colour taught me, which is attention to detail. Thank you. And I know Jacko will appreciate you answering his question there. Um, my next question is from uh, Carl Hunter. Um, he says, Secretary of State, the Integrated Review and Defence Command paper have proved to be the most intellectually coherent that we've had in many years, defining global Britain, making the case for cross-Whitehall effort in securing the national interest and recognising the vital link in between our defence, security, global economic interest, and national prosperity. He says, I warmly congratulate you and our Prime Minister. Who were the principal contributors to this successful policy formation? I wish you all success. Uh, well, John Bew, Professor John Bew, who works in uh, number 10 uh, from King's College, he's been particularly uh, supportive to, you know, on the same issue, which is integration matters. Uh, I think you know, there's a there's a lot of inspiration in this review. You know, I, having been the security minister, I really believe, and from my own personal experience in the armed forces, that the contest strategy—that's the counterterrorism strategy of Britain—that's been around for probably about 15 years, I think—is the best strategy in government. And why is it the best strategy in government? Because it recognises that you you can't do everything on your own. You have to burden share to solve problems. And so, in terrorism, we do it with everything from the Department of Health. The, Department of Education, all the way through to our intelligence services and the traditional sort of characters that you would expect. And that should just apply in other areas like foreign policy. It is a campaign. You need to campaign uh, to project your influence and to protect, protect your allies. So I think that's been uh, at its heart, the, the re my recognition. And, and we are going to appoint key people within the department, the military personnel, to drive campaigns uh, and I can't tell you which, I'm not allowed to, but uh, drive certain campaigns to make a difference. Um, and then my inspiration was the threat. Uh, so that's why I was handed at the beginning of this process effectively a balance sheet, which I said, thank you very much. And I pushed it to the side. I said, we are going to start with the threat. And I asked my chief of defence intelligence and Lieutenant General, uh, Sir Jim Hockenhall, to start with a presentation at the Tower of London to all of the chiefs uh, on what the threat is and what defense intelligence view as the threat going forward. And that, that was the start point. And each chief came to give a plan. I also rather cheekily asked them if they were running the whole thing, what their plan would be. So you got to have a view of what their view of the other services was. Um, and that's how we started. And I think that's why it is coherent because we had a plan. They, they produced the plan to the threat. There was a red teaming or a criticism of each plan and, and a support. And then I sat with them for hours and we worked through the details. And it's been nine months, really, of solid work around that. I've been supported by some excellent permanent, uh, permanent secretary, Stephen Lovegrove, who's gone off to be the National Security Advisor, uh, and my team in the department. So overall, it, I think it's been coherent because we all understood it's about the threat. And if we kept forgetting it, you only had to go and go back to the Chief Defence Intelligence. And, and that means we've managed to tie what I think up is a command paper that goes from top to bottom and recognises that the world is about soft and hard power and it's in a constant competition. Um, brilliant, Secretary of State. Thank you for answering that um, so uh, coherently. Um, I know Carl will appreciate it. Um, I'll move on to the next question we've got here is from uh, Tony Thornham. Um, Tony says, our armed forces are renowned for having a large tail what opportunities are there to focus investments on the cutting edge? Well, we published literally, uh, we hadn't created enough work for ourselves, the integrated view of the defence command paper. The next day we launched the defence uh, industrial strategy, which is really about indicating to industry, 
and to others where we are going to invest in the future because I think it's really important that we get the balance right and it you know it you often hear sort of buy British often trucked out and and that's really important that we buy British but it's also really important that when when I'm on the front line I had the best kit right I mean it's not a great comfort if sometimes the kit wasn't the best and so we have to make sure that over the long term we indicate where we're going to invest our money to allow British industry uh, to go there if it wishes to and 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 offer solutions and that we sort of co-invest to make sure it gets there but it's also about indicating to international partners because you know I'm not uh, I don't believe I invented everything or that we in defense or the UK invented every single thing and Modern defence equipment is usually a collaboration. The F-35 fighter, where some of that's made in Lancashire, the Typhoon, which is made in Lancashire, but also made in Munich, uh, in Germany, Spain and Italy. All of those allow us in our part of the world to be at the front. So that's how we're going to do it. It is a lot of money, about half, you know, about of 190 billion uh, that we're going to spend overall running defence the next four years. Uh, it'd be about uh, 80 billion probably uh, will be on equipment. That's a lot of money. A lot of it's going to be in R&D, over, over 6.6 billion, but it will be higher than that. Uh, and it will be about delivering programmes. Yeah, it's an absolutely huge investment and it was a fantastic win for the department. And, you know, I'm sure you had a huge part to play in that um, at the back end of last year with the extra funding commitment. Um, uh, we've got a question from uh, an anonymous um, uh, audience member who says, what advantage is there to have a Secretary of State for Defence or ministers in the department who have served in the military, or for that matter, Secretaries of State in other departments who have first-hand experience of the ministry which they oversee? So how important is having experience of the, on the ground of the department that you're overseeing or a minister? I'm, I'm going to slightly turn it another way. It's whether you're genuinely interested in the subject, in my view, makes a difference. After three and a bit years as security minister, uh, a number of people would say, you know, secretary minister, you, you really cared about the subject. Um, that's because it was the subject I did in 1994. I was an intelligence officer in Northern Ireland. It, it, you know, I, I'm not going to tell you which areas of government I'm not particularly interested in, but, you know, we can't be interested in everything. And um, if, if you are interested in something and you're determined to get the best for the people delivering that you'll do the extra hours in the office you will you will uh, you know go that extra mile so so i think it's not it's not necessarily that you have an experience you know i was a young captain in the in the army and, you know my experience of the navy was zero my experience of the ref was a thing that flew very very fast over my head uh, uh, on uh, on an exercise uh, to drop munitions but i never really was you know engaged with it so um i'm not sure i think what's been most useful for me is a, I'm passionate about the subject, and that's why I joined the armed forces. Uh, and B, uh, I've I've learned how to govern uh, through my experience, and and it's often an undervalued quality across whatever political party, knowing how to run a government. I started my life in opposition, uh, and I've gone up through, and you know I'm determined that we as ministers work as teams because if we don't, what happens is the system gets between the two of us between me and my minister, uh, and that's how Sir Humphrey wins, and I'm determined to make sure that uh, we work together as a team. Absolutely. Um, I mean, certainly uh, from, from my experience in, in a much more minor capacity with our members and those people who are involved in politics who've got military backgrounds or who adhere to the military ethos, something that they kind of talk about is the values and also leadership and both of those must be incredibly important for you when you're, you're doing your job. And of course, for any minister, you know, throughout the government. Um, uh, another question here from an anonymous um, uh, audience member. What lessons have been learned by the military response to the COVID crisis? Uh, very topical. Um, what lessons about resilience and capacity building could be retained in other public services? Well, I think your questionnaires are, in a sense, answered the first part of the question. So one of the lessons is the importance of resilience. Um, and for defence, not surprisingly, resilience is effectively our middle name. So, so, you know, that is what we do. That's our day job. Uh, you know, right now, uh, I've been on the phone this morning about a, a part of the world where there is an issue developing. Uh, and we are thinking straight away about uh, what we can do uh, to get ahead of it. So resilience is our sort of middle name. And we've used our knowledge uh, to, to help the whole of Whitehall in that. So, you know, what we find is, you know, very early on in this process, once we had our plan set and started delivering 
I said to the leading general, right, you go back to your day job and your deputy will take over because that that is what we do. We, we you know, the because we have resilience in our system, we have concurrency often, we can do the other job. So we, we've set up, we've spread uh, things around how to improve command and control, how to improve logistical thinking, how to improve uh, analysis. We, we, I sent intelligence analysts into the NHS to help them absorb and, and crunch data. So it, I think what we've shown both of all to government, but also to the public is, you know, we are not just about big wars or war fighting. We are about that resilience. And it slightly feeds into the thread of, if we can do resilience here, we can help resilience in countries that have our interests, but are under threat from others. And if you do that earlier enough, you can strengthen them and therefore uh, be, be, be more influencing on Brit as Britain. Thanks, Secretary of State. The, the next question I've got um, uh, sort of it says that the command paper's investment in space and cyber is very welcome. But what investment are we going to see in our conventional forces, which also require investment and modernization? Well, m most of most of the funding in the next four years is in the conventional. Uh, people often think that this is about a, a one or the other, that it's, uh, you know, it's space and cyber and everything else is, is, is not. It's actually the other way around at the moment. The amount of money that we will put in defence, so for, I think for the army, it's about 23 billion pounds of extra spending. So we're gonna replace uh, a number of the armoured vehicles with, with a boxer, uh, which will be made in Telford and Stockport. We will uh, replace electronic warfare. We will, yes, we will reduce the number of tanks, but the ones we keep, we're gonna upgrade to being some of the most lethal tanks in Europe. And, you know, those upgrades are all over in billions, you know, the, the warrior. And then also we're getting, we're starting the process now of the manufacturing and the rollout of the Ajax, Ajax uh, strike recce vehicle. You know, that's a three to five billion pound program. So there's a lot of money going into conventional forces, the type 26 ships that are being made in Scotland, the type 31 and a commitment to the type 32. The, the continued procurement of the F-35 fighters, uh, the P-8s that are now being delivered and the E-7 early warning radar. Uh, and then we're gonna invest in things like more complex weapons and missiles as well. So it, it, it's not the case they were off chasing uh, rainbows in, in space and cyber. Uh, it, you know, it, we are shaping what we need in space and cyber. We're pump priming some of that, but in the next four years, we'll be spending an awful lot on uh, the conventional forces. I feel like I should give you a chance to pause for breath before I just keep throwing these questions at you, but they are right. coming in thick and fast, I'm afraid. Um, how do we retain public understanding, awareness and support of the effectiveness of the military when operating overseas, where the benefits may not be as acutely felt as when the military operates on the home front? I, for example, have still got friends of mine who are in One Mercy and right now are in Estonia. I've got a friend of mine who's also in... Uh, in Texas, I believe, doing some training with the um, US forces over there. Um, how can we sort of connect that to the, the public at home and let them see, you know, the, the, what the training and what the um, value added is in operating overseas? Well, I think we always got to sell ourselves. I mean, it's really important that we, you know, as the generations move on who were in national service or, you know, whose parents fought in the war, etc., that link is, 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 you know, slowly but surely uh, getting weaker. And, and so therefore we've got to do even more to sell ourselves. It's why one of the reasons in, in the cadets, we uh, started under one of my former colleagues, Gavin Williamson, we had a target of 130,000 cadet places. We've gone beyond that. Uh, it's why actually, uh, you know, one of the silver linings, uh, and I'm not saying it, it's something I would have wanted at all of COVID is, you know, the public have met lots and lots of members of the armed forces they don't know whether they're reserved and they don't know whether they're regulars they are people there to help they're the can-do spirit uh, and i think uh, you know that that event has definitely rebuilt some connections uh, and at the same time i think we just have to make sure that we constantly use all the social media and all the things that everyone else does uh, to say how important it is it's not easy uh, often the mainstream media are not that interested you know, last Sunday I did the Andrew Marr show and I did uh, Sophie Ridge on Sky and I think I got one question on defence and all the rest was about COVID or the events of the day. So it's not always that easy. Uh, the papers can be supportive, uh, but we just have to go out and sell it. Uh, and it is a constant job to do so. 
Right, and we, we wish you all the best in that. I'm sure it's sometimes a difficult... Well, you've got, you've got a role to do with it, James. You can do it as well. <laughs> well, we try. We try. And we, we have some of our members who've contributed to uh, articles to Conhome. Um, Nick Clark's uh, got one. Uh, Ed McGuinness frequently writes for them as well. So we, we are we are trying to get on the front foot. Um, I've had a, a, a bit of a cheeky message here from a friend of mine on WhatsApp, actually. So I, I thought I'd ask this. How did you persuade the Prime Minister to give you the biggest defence increase since the Cold War? Um, <laughs> Persuasion. <laughs> I learned a few things in my um, look. I, I um, I look. I didn't really need too much, you know. Um, I just showed the threat, really, uh, and the and 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 the realities of, you know, those years, those cumulative decades, and it is decades of hollowing out and underfunded and overambitious uh, reviews, led to a. a, a a place where the music was about to stop and we had to unpack, you know, the past the parcels, the music was stopping. And he he understood very much from his time as foreign secretary that when he went abroad, people said to him, what we really want is Britain's defence knowledge, whether that's equipment or whether that's us, what's in our heads or whether that is our forces. And he recognised that one of Britain's unique selling points around the world is that they, they respect our capabilities. Um, and then the rest was, I'm afraid, just politics. And... Uh, uh, I didn't, he didn't take much persuading. I think uh, Boris has been incredibly supportive of me throughout all of this, and uh, I'm incredibly grateful. It wasn't, it wasn't too much dark arts going on. <laughs> um, uh, I've got one more question that's been sent in from the audience. We've probably got time for one more after that. So if anybody is watching and wants to get um, a final question in, please send it in now. Um, I've, the, the next one we'll go to is, what does persistent global engagement really mean? And what will this more active approach mean for our armed forces personnel? Well, so from a defence point of view, it means being present and recognising that our adversaries are not sitting in a barracks waiting uh, to challenge us uh, as if someone's going to fire a starting pistol. You know, General Gerasimov, the Russian chief of defence staff, said in a speech about six, seven years ago, you know, that the, the, the world of war and peace, in his view, is over. It is a constant competition. It is it is a hybrid. Now, that's not new. I mean, that's gone back to even the 19, well, von Clausewitz, if you want to study military uh, strategists. But but the, the concept of, of constant competition, the Russians felt that all those color revolutions that we saw in places like Ukraine and, and Georgia, et cetera, were were West's attempt to constantly undermine them. They were wrong, but but nevertheless, they, they felt that it was a constant competition and that we weren't, you know, no one should wait for this sort of, uh, almost like a Cold War event where everyone sits in their garages waiting. And so that means we, we have to be on the lookout. We have to be constantly active as an armed forces to make sure that where our uh, vulnerabilities are are not threatened or indeed that we we make sure we exploit opportunities as well and I think that that means we just have to be more dynamic and more campaigning and also recognize that being present has a bonus has has a benefit in itself being out and about around the world you know I, I definitely remember joining the army with that phrase you know join the army see the world um and what's been sad is over the last few decades, there are less and less British army bases in the world that I remember. Uh, and I'm going to go back to that. We're going to put more troops, more of the year present around the world. That's how you influence people. And it's also how you change the behaviour of your adversaries. If you're sitting in Tidworth clipping your toenails, you don't really have much effect. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you wait, quote unquote, for the balloon to go up, it may all be too late. So let's get out there persistently project Britain's values and Britain's support for people uh, and persistently help uh, uh, spread that influence and complement the rest of government's efforts, which you could argue is also around trade and science and all those other things. And it, it might not be we're in the same place. It might be that in one country, the way Britain can, can project global Britain is through its science. Um, it might be in other countries purely through its military. And I think that's, that's what we're gonna do. And so to make sure we do it, James, I'm going to invest in a defence diplomacy network. We already have one, but it needs to be better, it needs to be bigger, and it needs to be better trained. Secretary of State, that, that, that sounds uh, fantastic. 
Um, it would be remiss of me not to take the, uh, this opportunity to ask a question um, that directly relates to CF Armed Forces and our mission. And we're very, very grateful for you for joining us um, today and also for providing the forward for our forthcoming uh, policy pamphlet. Um, but um, what we're trying to do is get people who either have served in the armed forces or who have that military ethos, just connection with, with the armed forces, to join up and get involved in politics, whether that be as an activist or as a, a, a police and crime commissioner candidate, or as a parliamentary candidate, or as a councillor. Could you give them um, just, you know, succinctly a little bit of advice and about whether they should get involved in politics? Well, look, I, I got involved in the armed forces because I believed in things. They weren't too political. They were, you know, I believed in the qualities and the values that the British armed forces stood for. If you, if you believe in those values, James, and you you believe in, you know, also doing the right thing by the armed forces. You know, one of my motivations for politics was I saw the young men in my regiment who came, some of them came from the roughest parts uh, of Britain and they bettered themselves. They had done an amazing thing. And I just felt that society didn't recognize that and didn't really reward them for that. And I was determined to make sure that I did something to try and fix that. And so, you know, today, for example, uh, and over the last few months, we are now rolling out wraparound childcare for all personnel working in the armed forces. That, you know, that, you know, as long as their children at primary school, they'll get after school club and breakfast club. And, that, you know, that really matters. And when people talk about the size of our armed forces, remember, you know, what is the point in having lots and lots of people if we don't look after them, if we don't spend, as I'm going to spend, 1.5 billion on single living accommodation? James, you and I have been in probably woeful accommodation <laughs> over our years. Yes. Woeful. <laughs> uh, the, the, I remember the irony is one of the best barracks I ever lived in was the SS barracks in Hona, former SS one. I mean, <laughs> sort of summed it up, really. So I think, I think the... I think, you know, we've got to invest in those people. Uh, and, you know, if you care about that uh, and you care about the values, in, in my view, about, you know, standing up and making yourself be counted and you think you can govern as well, because it's also about can you have a better government? People get the government they deserve if they don't try and contribute to it, whether it's local government or, or national government. And, you know, I think that's really, really important. And I can tell you, if you're in the armed forces or you were and you're watching this, the skills you learned will make you a good governor if you get into government. Well, thank you so much um, for that. And, and I feel like we've really finished on a, a high. Um, and obviously from all of our members and from the audience, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the audience members who've sent in a, a pretty punchy array of questions. I feel like you've, you've really had a bit of a, a machine gun right. um, uh, on it, but you've, you've handled them very, very well as, as I would um, anticipate uh, that you would. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck with rolling out this plan um, over, over the short, medium and long term and um, keep up the fantastic work in government. Thank you, James. Bit of a dry do, this one. Of, <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> hopefully we can meet in person I could have too. something in my hand, but I don't. I'm afraid nothing to drink. <laughs> so <laughs> have a good Thank, Thank you, you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this month's episode of the CF Armed Forces podcast, and you join us again for next month's.